out your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We'll be reading from the first 11 verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. A couple of comments as you turn there. The first is that this was um, an Advent sermon or a Christmas sermon that I was able to prepare for the church where I do my internship in Idaho. Um, and Advent is, is not just about the first coming of Jesus and His incarnation. It's also about the second coming. And, you know, it, perhaps there's no time better than to think about the coming of Jesus, the first coming and the second coming, and the importance of it than after Christmas when we have a tendency to maybe think to ourselves, well, we've just celebrated it for a month and we've just thought about it for a month. Maybe we don't have to think about it. And um, the reason for that is because incarnational theology is not just... The incarnation is not just something that encompasses our deliverance, it's, a, it's an entire mode of thinking within Reformed theology. It recognizes the entire way that God condescends to uh, entreat with us. In each and every moment, He is constantly coming down to, uh, as John Calvin put it, speak to us in baby talk, uh, to, to, to enter into a relationship with us and deliver us from the plight and the problem of sin. So it's always important to think about the incarnation, perhaps, uh, and perhaps no time like the present is, a, is as appropriate. So Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation comes and a generation goes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they will flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in ages before us. Verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. If you'll turn also to John chapter 1, we'll also read from there. We'll be using this text later on to think about. This message. John chapter 1. This is the holy and inspired word of God. Let us listen with reverence and awe. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came to bear witness... He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. 
He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his people did not receive him. But to all who, all who that did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of, the, of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Will you pray with me? Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths, and so we ask now that you would uh, give us eyes to see and ears to hear how your word encourages us, educates us, and leads us to Christ our King. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, the book of Ecclesiastes is in some sense like uh, the story of, of Machiavelli, the prince. If you're at all familiar with that tale, the, the, the opening of the book has the quintessential wise men uh, go up on the mountain, as it were, from the, the foggy mire and the confusion and the, uh, uh, and the lowness of, at sea level, and he goes up onto the mountain to try to get a survey of the land and make sense of things. So the author of Ecclesiastes here is, as it were, ascending up onto the mountain to try to make sense of the complexity of this world and to, to, to ascertain what he can and, and, and see what he can find out. And he comes back down and he gives a, a report on the wisdom that he has gained while up on the mountain. And what is it that he sees up there? What is his report to us? Vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. One of the inherent difficulties of this book is translating that term, which you have before you, uh, vanity. I want to suggest for the purposes of this evening, not that vanity is wrong, but that I want to channel our thought about this book and these first 11 verses through the word instead, absurdity. Now, the reason for this is that vanity often conveys a, a posture within our hearts that creation is bad and that Everything is absolutely hopeless and terrible, and that's just simply not the case. Even the author of Ecclesiastes will encourage the, the audience throughout the book to enjoy the good things within creation. My favorite is in chapter 9. I haven't quite discovered this one yet, but he says, Enjoy life with the wife of your youth, for that is your portion in your lot in life. Yes, you can chuckle at that. No, creation is not bad. The problem is not meaninglessness or emptiness or a posture that is anti-creation. The problem within this world that the, the author of Ecclesiastes is wrestling with is the incalculable and unutterable or inexpressible complexity of life in a sin-cursed world that is under the power of a sovereign God. And for him, the, the fact of death compounds this absurdity there's, it makes life, death is unnatural, it makes life short, it makes life fleeting, 
transitory, ephemeral. These all are all words which convey the reality that it's almost like grasping after wind. We, can't, we just can't quite get a hold on life, and it will always escape us in death. And what is absurd about this all? Well, there's a, a sense in which life in a sin-cursed world flies in the face of that, that natural, God-designed, intuitive longing for harmony, for logic, for orderliness, for explicability, for things to just make sense in our experience. And so there's a disparity between what we expect should be the case and, and what actually is the case of our lives. There's a, a disjunctive, conflicting nature of life, and that is what we call absurd, because it breaks the harmony, the justice, the peace, shalom, and the garden bliss that we long for. And that means that there are, are blatant contradictions that we don't get explanations to. Life in this world is absurd to our intuitive longing for harmony and for consummation. And it's in light of this vanity, it's in light of this absurdity that the author of Ecclesiastes is almost asking in these first 11 verses, well, what were you expecting? Well, clearly, we have the habit of expecting the wrong thing, and, and his goal in this, in, in asking the questions that he does, in, in painting the picture that he does, and revealing what he reveals, is not so much to give you hope as it is to shock you into reality and to send you searching for a solution elsewhere. And so what he's going to do as he, as he makes this statement is he's going to put that theory about absurdity, about vanity, to the test. And he, he begins to, to show you that or try to peel back the layers, as it were, in verse 2 when he asks, what do you gain by all the toil with which you toil? Do you want me to prove my thesis? Let me ask you about your experience. What you'll come to find is that absurdity is the right way to think about things. Nothing is gained. Things, things remain the same. There's no development, development in creation. Nobody gets by. What came from dirt goes back to dirt. And no matter what you do, what you expect doesn't work out the way that it ought to. And you cannot fill the earth and subdue it. The, the cultural mandate that God gives to Adam in the garden and you cannot even obey God enough or undo the past in order to garner consummation. You can't fix this world. You can't create harmony. Absurdity is what is and what will be. Want proof then? Says the author, let's analyze the absurdity within creation, and let's analyze the absurdity of our experience and, being, and in being awakened to this reality, let us look for an absurd solution. And those will be our three points this evening. Absurd, creation, experience, solution. So first, verse 4, he states, a generation comes and a generation goes. And, and what I take him to mean here in this rhetorical question is, that he's wrestling with the fact of man's death, the shortness of man's time on this earth, and the fact that there should be in this life that he has some sort of cultivation, some sort of development, some sort of progress within creation toward consummation. 
But instead, the reality of our experience is that you born, you live, and you die. I think that's really interesting to think about when you, when you analyze some of the most infamous or, or rather famous stories in our, in our day and age. You often witness that what a king desires to leave behind is something for his son to take on. A kingdom that he might say, I accomplished this and I passed it to my son. But the author here is saying, well, not really. A generation comes, a generation goes, but the earth remains forever. And look within creation now at this cyclical and repetitive nature of things. People come and go to infinity and beyond, but nothing actually changes. There's this generational trend within the experience of man's life on, in earth as he in, interacts with creation that almost conveys a, a, a generational curse. We're all stuck on this rock. And this repetitiveness, this cyclical nature to things is reflected in the order and the nature of this world. There's never a point where things reach their final destination and arrive. Verse 5, the sun goes up and the sun goes down and it hastens to the place where it began and it will continue to do so. Verse 6, the wind goes around to the south and around and around and around and around on its circuit it goes. And verse 7, all streams run to the sea, but, the, but it never fills, and they just continue. Plug all the, the things in that you want, but nothing is going anywhere. It's dreary, it's static, it's frustrating, and it really shows within the created order itself this longing for something more and for progress and for development. We don't want to see the same thing repeat over and over again. I remember as a child um, experiencing the, the nature of this world very vividly. Uh, we used to have Hot Wheels. I think kids still play with those. And um, you have those orange little racetracks. And as a child, you might set it up and you, 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 you prop up one part of the track hoping that if you start the, 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 the car off at the top, it will race to the bottom without any aid and come all the way back up to the top. And so you might jimmy-rig it this way and that. No matter what you do without any kind of external aid, that car cannot beat gravity. It will never achieve its goal. I think this nature to creation in a sin-cursed world is answered, if you will, by the new creation and what we hear of that in the book of Revelation this unmet development and the absurd repetition within creation is answered by this. What do we hear? There will be no more sun, but God will be the light of the city. The river too. The water of life that we, we drink of will not come from the mountains and go to the sea to go back to snow to melt in the summer. It will come from the throne of God and from the everlasting source that is the Spirit. So creation as it now is, is reflecting this chasing after wind, this absurdity, this unmet longing for development. But what about our experience? It's our second point this evening. We run in circles. Here's the reality. We run in circles too, just like creation, grappling with this absurdity, 
with this vanity, with this shortness and ephemerality or the mortality of life every day. And I think that the author here understands that shortness or that transience in your experience and the madness and the mundaneness and the disappointment of life. He understands the complexity and the difficulty of life. And I sense that every human who reads the wisdom of this preacher can immediately connect with the observations that he's making. There's something in life, there's something in our experience that just doesn't quite add up. So one author comments, for goal-oriented, achievement-driven, ambitious people, life may deal a disappointing hand mixed with grief, confusion, and disillusionment. There is a real sense in which life in a sinful world is absurd to our intuitive longing for harmony, for peace, for goodness, for justice, and in this lies the contradiction. And so for Kohelet, the observations that he's making is in the pudding. It's in the history of mankind's unutterable experience. In verse 7, he shows us that we can't describe our experience, and we can't even begin to explain the weariness. We can't see enough, the eye is not satisfied with seeing. We can't hear enough, the ear is not satisfied by hearing. In verse 9, we, we, we can't do enough to change things, and we'll just keep on doing the same old things forever. In verse 10, in these experiences, nothing is new. It's all, it's all happened before. And in verse 11, it will continue to happen. History will repeat itself. And the, the, the generations to come will try the same old things we've done, only to find no success. Over and over and over again, this is the experience of people living in a synchronous world. And it's almost unbearable. I think if you're anything like me, as you wrestle with these 11 verses, you sense that what he's saying is just confusing and yet somehow makes sense of your experience of life in this world. That unmet expectation that you have to your intuitive sense for longing, for shalom, for garden bliss, for justice, for order out of chaos. And that's part of the puzzle of this book, I think. Here you have the quintessential wise man struggling to define and explain the nature of life in this world. This, all things are full of weariness, he says, and man cannot utter it. He can't explain it. He can't make sense of it. What's the point of the whole thing? We, we come from dust. We're going back to dust. There's no, there's no sense of development in this life. It's toilsome. What's the point? The earth remains the same and you die. You eat only to eat again. You sleep only to sleep again. You make your bed to do your bed again. You do the dishes. How toilsome. Only to do the dishes again. Pick your poison, your least favorite task. And it's not to say that, that all of life is bad. As we noted already, he'll go on to, to encourage us to enjoy certain things. But it's just not this text. This text is dealing with the complexity. It is dealing with the absurdity. It is dealing with the vanity. And the author here is inviting you, as a reader, as a student of Scripture, to think about it and to look that absurdity in the face. 
And in the end, what he's, he's, he's revealing to us is that creation and that history stand as a grand law against us. You cannot win here, you cannot remain here, and you cannot balance the book. Nothing escapes the cycle of this futility in this age where sin and death remain. Were you thinking you would? I think many a Christian have been disillusioned, frustrated, and walk away from the church because they thought that they could. You will be frustrated when the reaper comes and the scales balance. There is no escape and there is no profit. So what's the solution? Well, in one sense, we want to almost, as it were, sit with this feeling a moment longer. One of my professors in seminary, Dr. Stell, said of this book that it's a, that, that at least as we are treating this book, that this world is a trap for logisticians or children mathematicians, people that try to make sense of things by adding it all up. But what happens when instead of trying to make sense of this world, we stare this absurdity in the face? That's what the author is inviting us to do. But we're confronted with the reality that this world breaks everyone. It breaks me. And maybe it's broken you too. Those things that you couldn't quite possibly imagine would characterize the history of your life. Those things that make no sense out of the choices that you've made and the labor that you've committed only to render back nothing. This world breaks everyone. And the author understands that. He's not a He's not a logistician. He's not trying to make sense of it. And he says that you can't avoid reality. It was always going to come, and it will continue to come. And so if absurdity is a trap for logisticians, maybe it's indicative that we need an absurd solution. Maybe it's indicative that we need to get creative. And in one sense, that's what the author is doing here. He's not providing an answer in these 11 verses so much as what he's trying to do is by showing you how hopeless the things of this world are and everything within this world, he is trying to motivate you to begin to look elsewhere. He's implicitly showing us where it can't come from by so dashing our hopes and our expectations of our experience and our, and our analysis of this life. The realist is providing realism to those who are so habitually inclined towards delusion. Me. And that solution is absurd because it is not intuitive to us. One of, my, one of my favorite books, I love to mention this opening quote, is The Marrow of Modern Divinity. Uh, and, and Thomas Boston comments in the preface to this book, if all the rationalists, if all the wisest people in the world got together and tried to figure out how God was going to make sense of this mess, they would never hit upon that which the divine wisdom has planned. It's not intuitive to us. What is intuitive to us? What is our habit as we try to make sense of or deal with the complexity and the absurdity and the tragedy, the slings and arrows of outrageous misfortune of our lives? Well, perhaps we're disgruntled and the first thing that we do is try to, we try, try addition. We try to add to our lives a new job, a, a new home, a new town, a new city, a new car. 
for some it's a new wife, a new husband. Perhaps we try to distract ourselves. Entertainment, new hobbies. After all, these things are not that easy to face. These realities are not that easy to think about. I think there's a reason that sex, money, and drugs are the most popular vices. But the author of Ecclesiastes says that won't work. It's been done. It's been tried before. And in the face of injustice, the rules and the order that we thought governed things don't pan out, so we can't create heaven on earth. The wicked prosper, the upright suffer, the innocent are maimed and plagued with disease. Poverty strikes the pure in heart and famine sweeps across the land of the innocent and those who are already struggling with drought and famine. As one pastor says, life ain't fair. You can't make sense of it and it does not ask your permission to do what it does. And it's confusing because this world is confusing and it's a problem because this life is a problem. And those good old days that we thought were so good, well, if they were so good, what happened to them? And if history hasn't found the solution yet, who are we to think that we will? So the solution into this world of absurdity, into this world of confusion, into this world of chaos, into this world of injustice, into this world of no gain, into this world of sin that breaks the backs of every toiler who toils under the sun, enters the God-man. If it cannot come by addition, if it cannot come by distraction, if it cannot come by perfect obedience to the law, if it cannot come from our effort or our toil, the solution must come from outside of creation. And that's what makes the incarnation so special. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's something, dear people of God, that history has not seen. The God-man, Jesus Christ, never before had God entered the chaos and the disorder of human experience and walked in our shoes as we walk. But behold, he might say, a new thing that I has not seen nor ear heard. Behold, one who comes to proclaim liberty to the captives, good news to the poor. In him is life that the darkness cannot overcome. He comes to offer a solution to this absurdity. He gives deliverance from this madness by giving to you and to I not a new birth, not of the will of flesh, not of the will of blood. After all, that's been tried, that's been done before. Many a kings have been shattered trying to establish their father's kingdom. But he gives to you new birth from the will of God. And in this, we see something that satisfies our sin. 
as we taste and we see that the Lord is good in the supper. And in this, we hear something that satisfies our hearing as we hear the gospel proclaimed. Into this world of no gain, God gave his only begotten son to make all things new. That's the motto at Providence. In Christo omnia nova, in Christ, all things new. God sent his only begotten son into this world of no gain, of death, of destruction, of people wearing themselves out under this common curse, of being broken by the world and its absurdity, to give his life as a ransom for your own. When that God-man, that Son of God, entered the disorder and the brokenness of our world, as Hebrews says, for the joy set before him and it broke him as he sweat blood. It broke him as it broke every man before him. And he says of that bloody death, behold, this is the new covenant in my blood. There through death, the, absurd, the most absurd thing about life was defeated. There through death, death was defeated because God in the person of the Son and in his work entered life and disorder and chaos to provide a solution that, for which we could not. So Advent, Christmas, celebrates this. It celebrates the entrance of Christ into the world, God with us, and it recognizes the ways that Christ's work and his entrance into the world begins to deliver us from this common curse and from this absurdity. Now, as, as you well know, because Jesus has already come and you still experience the absurdity of this life, the incarnation doesn't necessarily and immediately change the world. It's, it's still absurd. It's just not hopelessly absurd. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that we can, we can recognize this absurdity. We can recognize that this is the nature of things in a world that may, uh, of, of problems that man has created and that man can't solve. We can have peace about that. And I don't need to answer that absurdity, and I can have peace about that absurdity, and I can look at that absurdity because, absurdity because I know that it was answered in the manger. And the reason that it's not hopelessly absurd and why we have peace about it is because Advent or Christmas was not just about Jesus' first coming. It's about his second coming, too. The reason that the absurdity of your experience is not hopeless and why you have peace is because the mission that Christ had begun in his incarnation, in his first arrival, of which it was said, God with us, promises to come again and draw him, us to himself there, that we might be with him again. The reason that it is not hopelessly absurd and why you have peace about it is because the most absurd thing about life, death, is solved by the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. I heard one minister stay, say, there's nothing about death that a good resurrection can't fix. 
So let us give thanks and praise to God for the arrival of Jesus Christ in that manger. And let us look forward with hope, with joy, with gladness to his return and to our deliverance from the brokenness, the disorder, the chaos, and the sin of this world. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we indeed do give you thanks and we indeed do give you praise that you came in the person and the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, and that you have made him known. That on that cross he was high and lifted up in glory as he accomplished his work of redemption, becoming the Savior of this world. Give us joy as we go out into this year. Give us praise. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Responding to this, we will turn standing together singing Psalm number, or song number 440, verses 1 through 5. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, 440. <laughs>